I'm Dr. Jill Weiner. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, along with some of my own insights and explorations on topic ranging from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice and beyond in order to provide a nuanced, educational, and honest examination of systemic racism and dominant culture. Before I start, I would like to do a land acknowledgement that this podcast episode is being recorded on the stolen Creek and Muscogee lands. Welcome. I am so excited to have Raina Legrand here with me. We're going to have such a great conversation uh, Raina Legrand, she, her pronouns, is a somatic trauma therapist, yoga teacher, and speaker facilitator specializing in racial identity, trauma, relationships, and embodiment. Her work is guided by a deep belief that the relationships we choose are opportunities to practice new behaviors and values that weren't available to us in our families of origin. In her practice, she primarily helps mixed-race adults and interracial couples uncover who they are underneath their trauma so they can build healthy and meaningful relationships. She also provides coaching and courses for people of all identities. Raina, thank you so much for, for um, coming on the podcast, and I'm so excited to, to chat with you. Tell me if you could tell me a little bit about your, your kind of what brought you into this work, maybe a little bit about your, your own origins. Yeah, I think so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here. Um, so I got into this work, I would say there's a, a couple different paths that kind of led to this convergence of where I am. Um, one of them being that I've always been a very kinesthetic person. I've really always been drawn to movement and um, to bodies and to, to wellness. When I was growing up, I was a dancer and, um, you know, I'm, I'm mixed and I've always lived in a larger body or for mostly lived in a larger body. Um, and so I experienced a lot of, um, you know, isolation and bullying and, and shame as a kid. But when I was dancing, when I was on stage, I really shined. <laughs> in fact, like I would get compliments about my smile and it, looking back, it was like almost like... <laughs> too big of a smile on stage if you can imagine because I just was like so I was so comfortable sort of in my body in that way um and that like interest in movement and curiosity in bodies um continued with me throughout you know as I was growing up I I um, early on in my like adolescence, I got the chance to volunteer at uh, Planned Parenthood as a peer educator. And then throughout high school and college, I did a lot of different community health education around sexual health, se sexual assault prevention, healthy relationships. Um, and so I started to kind of get into the health education world and then I became a yoga teacher. So there's always been these components to me around movement and teaching and education and sort of working with people and bringing people together. And then simultaneously, um, you know, I think both in part because um, of my mixed identity and also just because of the wonderful parents and mentors that I had around me growing up, 
Um, I was all, always acutely aware of racial dynamics, right? And, and really identity dynamics um, in general and power dynamics and, and all of that. And, um, and so it was always really hard for me to separate, you know, race and identity from um, the, the work that I was doing as a yoga teacher, as a community health educator. And right, like I say, it was hard to separate, but there, there really isn't a separation, right? As you know, and your listeners know, it's all connected. And so I was always really interested in, um, the context of race in the U.S. And um, when I became a therapist, I started to do uh, take a lot of trainings in trauma and um, trauma treatment. Really, the gold star is um, approaches that incorporate the body, right? Because trauma is not just a cognitive experience. It's not something we just think about or that just affects like our brains and it's like a whole body experience. It's physiological, right? Something happens to us and our nervous system gets stuck in a certain state. And the thing is, something doesn't always just happen to happen directly to us, right? We can experience trauma as a result of the things that have happened to our community members, our families, and our ancestors as science and also just sort of indigenous and spiritual knowing is showing us like, this stuff is intergenerational, right? Um, and as I was learning to be a trauma therapist, um, there was a really huge disconnect in a lot of the trainings I was taking um, from the context of racism and oppression and colonialism, right? Um, uh, a lot of the trauma training I was doing was kind of in this vacuum space of um, a one-time incident, right? Being assaulted, um, having something really scary happen. Um, and I would, and so I, 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 I've always been someone who's seen the connections between things. I think that's part of the gift of being mixed race. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, like, I think I was coming into being a therapist in a time when um, a lot of these connections were being made by other people as well. And like, and have always been made, but were more explicitly talked about. Um, so over the course of the last few years, I've been in private practice as a working as a therapist with clients based in Michigan and as a coach with clients based worldwide um, around issues related to trauma, oppression, um, liberation, social justice. And over time, I've really started to focus um, all my work on the mixed experience primarily, and then also with interracial couples because um there's really there there are I've learned so much about other resources for mixed people but overall there's a huge gap in um in just services specifically for mixed people um anti-racism for the mixed person and so um yeah here I am <laughs> it's so wonderful um I have a huge, as I mentioned to you before we, we got started, I have a, a strong interest in trauma and that is a, a big part of what I teach and how I teach. Um, mm -hmm. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what it means to be trauma informed for people listening. Cause I feel like that it's, people are starting to talk about that, yeah. but it may be a little confusing for about what it means. Yeah. So, I mean, first I would say that, you know, we have a tendency to hear this term trauma informed 
And we might think of it as um, a specific tool or lens or perspective that we use in a specific place, right, under a certain set of context or circumstances. But I actually think that to be trauma-informed is um, just to, to be coming into like a more human form where we recognize that trauma is pervasive and really ubiquitous in our society. Um, so I think that framing is important to see being trauma informed as kind of like a way of life versus like some approach that you use in, you know, certain settings. Mm -hmm. Um, and I would say like the, the biggest tenet of trauma informed practice is, um, really around giving people choice where choice has been taken away, right? Trauma is the impact of something that happens to us where we felt like there was too much, it was too fast, it was too overwhelming, we lacked choice, you know, we didn't have choices and we didn't have support. And so I think that to be trauma-informed is in large part to think about how do we give people choice and agency where that's been um, stripped away. Um, and I think a big part of that is recontextualizing, um, adding context back where it's missing, right? So a lot of the times people who um, have experienced trauma, and really, I think we've all experienced trauma, but it just feels like this is the way life is, you know, this is just how I am. This is just how my family is. Resma Menicum, whose book Ice Can See oh, on Your Shelf. <laughs> it's so funny. I just see a sliver and I know exactly what it is. But, you know, he is, for those who don't know, he's a um, trauma therapist whose work is all about racialized trauma. And he talks about how trauma, intergenerational trauma and systemic trauma in particular is so decontextualized. So we just see things as personality traits or as family traits or as culture but it's really important to recognize that the way we show up in the world has roots, right? Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. I'm having like a moment of just like all my worlds colliding in the best way right now. Um. <laughs> I know me too. And I'm like, I, I'm making sense. Let me know if you have any clarifying questions. In no, there. <laughs> it's, it's great. It's great. I'm, um, yes, I'm, all, 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 everything you said. So how, how do you, I'm curious, first off, I guess if you could talk a little bit about somatics and mm -hmm. kind of what that means, I know you, mm -hmm. you mentioned the body. So somatics is related to the body and getting mm -hmm. into the body, but how, how does that become a, a form of therapy and how do you then apply that into, yeah. um, into anti-racism spaces and, and mixed yeah. spaces? Yeah. So somatics is really an umbrella term right, for different approaches that incorporate the body. And this this term was coined by a white man, Thomas Hanna, in the 70s, I want to say. But it's important to note that somatic approaches have always existed, right? And they, um, a lot of them, you know, have their roots in indigenous practice. So yoga is a really great and obvious example, I think, of something that we use now in, in the Western world has become very modernized, but has really deep roots in India and Africa too. Um, uh, so, so yeah, somatics is kind of anything that incorporates the body. 
Um, for my for my own um, work, my I would say my somatic lineage is partly yoga, um, partly um, you know my literal sort of treatment in being or, or excuse me my literal like training in being a trauma uh, treatment specialist. So I have received um, training primarily from the Sensory Motor Psychotherapy Institute. So it's a really specific modality for treating trauma. And then I've also done a lot of study with um, Jane Clapp, who's a um, a movement educator and, and Jungian uh, psychotherapist, and then a lot of uh, self study with um, other somatics practitioners, um, BIPOC somatics practitioners. Um, I'm trying to think of some examples off the top of my head. Prentice Hemphill. Um, I don't know that she'd identify as somatic, but uh, Jennifer Mullen, Dr. Jennifer Mullen of Decolonizing Therapy. Um, so, so yeah, that's a little bit about sort of my lineage when it comes to my somatic approach. In therapy, somatic approaches um, really help clients to, um, to, to be able to... So trauma is like, like I said, it's a physiological experience, right? And so our traumatic responses, the emotions we feel, the body sensations we feel can hijack us, right? They can just completely take us over and like we can be flooded by those emotions and sensations. And so somatic approaches really help clients to develop the skills to be able to notice those experiences and almost in a way like develop a little bit of distance from them so that you can kind of get a bird's eye view or not feel so flooded, so hijacked by them so that then you can feel like instead of, oh my gosh, here's the trauma response and here and here's sort of the spiral, the downfall of everything that happens so that clients can have choice, more choice so that clients can feel safer or at least safe enough in their bodies so, um, you know, the first step is really developing somatic awareness, and we call that also dual awareness, the ability to notice what's happening without feeling like you get pulled all the way in. And um, from there, right, you sort of develop like a reparenting relationship with yourself where you start to notice your patterns and you and we can start to build skills around like what what happens what do you do when these things show up do you decide like okay i know i feel safe enough to sit with these feelings do you reach out for help cuz that's something that a lot of us don't do especially when we have traumatic when we're living with the impacts of traumatic stress or do you do something that sort of regulates and like shifts your experience so it's kind of like, you know, I think a lot of, about water examples. So, you know, we can be flooded by our experience or we can stand on the shore, on the pier, or we can like be wading in, dipping our toes, you know, only going as deep as we feel safe doing, knowing that like the shore is right there or we have a life raft. That's such a beautiful analogy. I love that. Yeah. Love that. And I think, I don't know what your experience has been, but <clears throat> for me, when I first started to even learn about this way before I became a practitioner, I was like, what do you mean feeling emotions in my body? Like, what mm -hmm. are you talking about? Like mm -hmm. they're, they're in my head, the emotion. Mm -hmm. How do you, do you, do you find a lot of people who like are completely 
disconnected and don't even know what it means to feel an emotion in their body. Oh yeah, totally. Or they'll be feeling it still. And they'll be like, I'm not feeling that right. Like, yeah, that's, that's so common. And that's really actually a protective strategy that your body's employing. Um, I use um, another approach in my practice that I use is called parts work. This idea that we have different parts of us and a lot of us already speak about ourselves this way. A part of me feels this way. A part of me feels that way. Right. And so, um, and so, yeah, it's really common for there to be parts who want to keep us away from feeling because feeling hasn't historically been safe and it might not presently be safe either. And to some extent, it isn't safe because we live in this world with active ongoing trauma for sure. Um, I love, I love the way you explain that because yeah, there's like the parts of me that there's like these old protective parts. And so it sounds yeah. like using somatics, allowing, allowing the body to feel safe again or safer. Yeah. Again, yeah. Be where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you, I'd love to talk with you a little bit about racial identity and belonging mm-hmm. and, and how that all kind of converges and, and creates a lot of loneliness. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think especially in the context of the U.S., like it's hard to separate trauma from racism. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so... um it's so connected um, because, you know, the impact of colonialism, you know, I'm trying to think what I'm, what am I trying to say here? The impact of colonialism really um, makes it hard for us to be present with ourselves and present with other people. Um, And you know, quite literally, depending on your identity, if you're Black or Indigenous, you might have also been, you know, torn away from your family. So we're sort of carrying that in our bodies. Um, And I think that, you know, for mixed people, especially um, a lot of us, most of us, honestly, I would say, to some extent, carry both oppressor lineages and oppressed lineages in our bodies, right? And so sort of finding our way and feeling like we can take our whole self anywhere is really hard, right? We feel like only parts of us can show up certain places. And I would say the same is true for monoracial people too. And I think about the experiences of like my black friends and black clients who have to code switch, for instance, to experience belonging at work. And then it's a different code when you're experiencing belonging like in your neighborhood, Um, I just think racial trauma is like the whole undertone for kind of how we relate to one another uh, here in the U.S. Yeah. And Western world and maybe world in general. Absolutely. I'm curious how you, how you see racial trauma landing and presenting in white folks, if that's something Mm -hmm. you've been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking a few questions back when you were asking like people who are people often disconnected Mm. from their bodies. I I really noticed that white people struggle with somatic approaches the most. (laughs) And of course, like black indigenous and people of color, like we can struggle with somatic approaches too. We can still be turned off, but I think that there's still a, 
cultural knowing in our blood and our bones around a somatic approach. And in particular, because somatics is so relational, somatics um, is, is really about reconnecting with yourself so that you can reconnect with other people because, you know, some of the more um, contemporary somatic approaches or lenses like um, polyvagal theory, I don't know if you're familiar with that, like the vagus nerve and how instrumental that is in um, how we connect with other people. And that connection is one of the ways that as humans, like we find safety, right? So I really noticed that white people struggle with the somatic piece because I think that we white people and others as well have a part who is like kind of like pledges allegiance to being disconnected from your body, right? Because in order to uphold oppression and white supremacy, there has to be disembodiment. You have to see people who are different from you as not human, right? Mm -hmm. To be able to enact that. Um, and then when you think about like, okay, here we are in this modern world, um, I think that there is this mechanism for all, all of us of like having to turn off that awareness because if we are aware of how dehumanized we have made ourselves and others, then like that would just, that's a whole Pandora's box, right? So yeah, I see white people really struggle to slow down and to settle in and listen in. Um, you know, you think about like the characteristics of white supremacy, like perfectionism and urgency, like somatics is like the antithesis of that. Like mm -hmm. somatics is all about slowing things down, not necessarily being attached to a certain outcome, like being in a liminal space of not knowing what's exactly coming next or a liminal space of not exactly categorizing things. Um, so yeah, those are some ways that I see white people struggle. And then, and then you need, uh, in addition, I'd say, you know, I, we, as therapists, as coaches, like we can work with you all day, but like what, who's in your environment, who's in your larger context. And like, you can do great somatic work and then go back to like your community or family where no one else is doing that. So you don't get to practice those mm. skills. And in fact, they might be poo-pooed. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, I, I, lo I love what you said about um, pledging allegiance. I don't remember the exact words, but like pledging allegiance to, to disembodied. Yeah. To disembodiment. I mean, that was yeah. right there. That was incredible. Uh, super powerful. Um, you mentioned the, the grief of being anti-racism, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, being anti-racist. And I'm, I'd love to learn more about that and, and your, your thoughts on that. Yeah. Yeah. So first I'd say that there's inherently grief in having to, to be anti-racist, to have to do anti-racist work, because it means that there's, in being anti-racist, we are acknowledging that something is wrong, something's been lost, death has literally happened. Um, and so, you know, in order, I think, to be a good anti-racist, like, you kind of have to open yourself up to that grief, right? It's not rainbows and butterflies like there's so much joy in anti-racism I think there's space for that again parts <laughs> but there's like so much grief and you know we are not practiced as a culture at grieving which I think 
A lot of us learned throughout the course of the pandemic in the summer of 2020, after Ahmad Arbery, that's his name, right? And George Floyd were murdered. Like there's so much grief that has come up and we don't know what to do with it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's, it's a grief practice to be anti-racist. And I think that trauma and grief are really interconnected because trauma is an experience where something's been lost you know, whether something happened or didn't happen, like it's a painful grief yeah. experience. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's, so, okay. So you're, cause a lot, like a, I'm curious your, your perspective when talking about having to, uh, grief and having to do anti-racist work, you're talking about people of all identities. Yeah. Clarify that. Um, yeah. Have, make, make there be a question mark in my voice. Are you talking about people? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, whether you're talking about black people who are grieving the experience of being black in America, whether you're talking about white people who are grappling with, this is what my ancestors did. And here's how complacent I've been. Here's the ways that I've been complacent. Yeah. And also like, here's what's happened to my POC friends. Like how sad is that? Here's how it like continues to happen. Yeah. How do you, you yourself, or how do you suggest holding space for white people who are like going through that? Because obviously mm -hmm. like it's a thing and it's real and white people mm -hmm. need support for that. Um, and often it gets kind of misdirected onto people who are on the lived mm -hmm. experience of racism and it's not really welcome. So how do you yourself hold space for that? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that white people need to find spaces where they can express their grief without holding back, whether that be, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? White caucus groups, white affinity yeah. groups, right? Or whether that be just other white friends or, you know, other or practitioners, you know, I, I, I'm not actively taking on white clients, but I have in the past and I love doing that work with people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I think that it's important to find space where you can grieve and express unfiltered and even like say out loud the things that the different oppressor parts of you are thinking, right? Because like, I think a lot of times white people will hold back from, um, saying what's inside because they know on some level it's wrong it's it's not right but like you need somewhere to be able to say that out loud and work through it um so yeah I would say like finding like protected space where it's it's explicitly given that like I can show up here um as I want to yeah as I need to rather yeah um I like I'm like having this moment where I'm like, I might be centering whiteness in this interview. So I want to make sure I'm not okay. Yeah. Well, I shouldn't. Um. <laughs> yeah. But and I would just um. add to that too. I mean, there are people out there who are doing this work. I have a close friend here in town who's um, working on her business specifically to offer like um, grief spaces for white people. Mm -hmm. And I know, you know, there are people have different opinions on this. You know, there are people who have no time or patience for it. And I understand where that feeling comes from. For sure. Yeah. How do you use somatics? I guess there's the self-care component. Like mm -hmm. there's, there's, there's healing trauma, which is also, I don't know. I'm, I don't know if, if, if I'm making sense what, what I'm getting at, but like mm -hmm. 
for people to care for themselves in the in the anti-racism movement to keep it sustainable or their mm-hmm. their efforts to be sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. So the self-care piece, I would say to maybe make it more kind of flesh that out, I would say that looks like developing the ability to notice your experience, right? And like identifying and practicing the skills that help you respond to that experience instead of avoiding it or overriding it, right? Again, and that's like a process of slowing down, which we don't always give ourselves um, the space for. Uh, so I'd say that's a big piece of it. Um, and and yeah, I think maybe what you're saying is like, there's different pieces of the puzzle. Like there's that, there is that sort of in the moment, how do I respond to myself? How do I take care of myself? There's sort of the proactive, like how am I proactively taking care of myself and like kind of building up my capacity, building my muscle for this. And then, um, and then I'd say that, you know, if you're working with a therapist or a coach who does this kind of work, then there is like the trauma processing, the grief processing, which is sometimes like more of a slowing down, like sensational sensation based experience, right. Um, where you're not necessarily like talking through things and strategizing, but just giving yourself space to, to heal, um, Mm. and to feel right. And the work that I do too, is some of it, uh, one approach is called sequencing. So noticing when there's activation in your body, staying with it and, and tracking it, following it. Mm. Cause sometimes that will lead to the impulse to push or shaking. Right. And that's sort of like on the nervous system level, giving your body the opportunity to like process some of the activation that's been stuck in your body. The other thing that I actually wanted to kind of, I think it relates to this question and your previous question about how do white people kind of show up is a a parts, this is language from parts work, but it's this idea of speaking for rather than from a part. So a good example of this is, you know, we, we all know what it's like to be really mad, right. And to like be seeing red and like to pop off on someone and curse and like, right, that's speaking from a part, mm. or I would say a good example in, in for a white person would be speaking from guilt. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. What do I do? <laughs> right. But I think that sometimes I know for me as a, as a person of color, as a black person, as a mixed person, when I'm not wearing my therapist hat, right it's easier for me to digest when people can sort of speak for their experience rather than from it to name like, man, I have a part of me showing up right now who is feeling so guilty. Mm. And like, I know it's not your job to take care of that. I'm just naming that because you might notice that I need to step away for a moment or, you know, yeah. I love that. Mm. That's like so self-aware, you know, that to do that and to like, name it, but like, be aware of the harm that that can cause it yeah. to a space. And then, and I, I love that. Um, what did you call that? Speaking for, not from Speaking the part. From. I think that's really, that's really great. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how do you, um, in your, in your mixed couples work, mm-hmm. I'm curious, um, what are some of the common, common things that you 
see like coming up for people over and over again, common mm -hmm. barriers, I guess, to um, being able to, each of them being able to show up in the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, truthfully, I think because couples are often coming into the work with their couple issues, not necessarily like, oh, we want to unwind our embodied racism, right? Sure. Like every once in a while, I get a couple like that who's like kind of not having any conflict. They're just like, we want to do this work, right? Yeah. And I would say the themes there are around um, being really mindfully aware of some of the subtle ways power might be showing up in the relationship, like who's making decisions. Um, uh, that's like a big piece or um, uh, I'm trying to think of another example. I'll leave that there for now, right? So there's the couples who are like, yes, we're here to do this big work. And then there's couples who are sort of like, we are just in crisis. Like, can yeah. you please help? And I would say some of the themes that I notice there are around um, differences in communication styles, right? Like white people tend to struggle with confrontation as a generalization, right? Whereas the person of color, if there it's a relationship where there's a white person and a person of color, that person of color is oftentimes more comfortable with conflict and confrontation. So that's one piece. Um, I would say, um, again, like going back to the differences in how emotions are handled, right? White people will sometimes struggle with... Um, you know, noticing what they're feeling and staying in that part of the work. Mm. Um, and then there's definitely instances where, uh, you know, if there's a, if, if it's a person of color, like that there is grief coming up for them around racialized trauma and they don't have the language for it, or they don't know how to talk about it with their partner. Um, yeah. So those are some of the big themes that I notice. Um, and lots of just differences culturally in duty to family. Um, oh, I would say actually a, another big piece I'm missing is um, uh, there's often one person in the relationship. And if it's a relationship where it's a white person and a person of color, the person of color notices a lot more. They notice microaggressions. They notice stares. Whereas mm. the white person is like not attuned to paying attention to those things. Sure. Um, so, you know, the work is about slowing down, getting curious about what's happening in each of your internal worlds, thinking about the connections that there might be to your culture, to um, racist, racialized conditioning, um, and then seeing like what feels right moving forward, what feels like most liberating for both parties that's so beautiful I I just was reminded as you're talking I'm Jewish and I grew up like you must marry someone Jewish because if you don't they won't understand you and you will never like be able to you'll get a divorce because you know they ha you have to have that common framework and mm -hmm. I didn't get married until like four months ago and I'm 45 so like didn't marry someone Jewish but like and like the whole issue about raising kids and are they going to be Jewish? Are they not? Well, like he already had kids. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to worry, you know, think about that. But there's that kind of, I experienced that in my version of other, which yes. was Jewish. Um, and I wonder 
I'm just thinking about how that, you know, could show up in dynamics. And I'm wondering, not in terms of specifically Jewish people, but like how that shows up in mixed couples. Um, yeah. Well, I think one, one pretty common point you just pointed out there is like parenting, mm-hmm. like both parenting differences, like differences in how you discipline, talk about emotions, d- differences in expectations around like how you treat elders Mm. but also just like how what's the what's the identity orientation we're raising our child around and like you know are we are we raising our our kid to uh are we using language where we're helping them develop a mixed identity or you know are we do we feel like they should identify as black, you know, um, that kind of stuff, uh, can be, can be a really tender raw point for parents, because I think as a parent, there's this part of you who wants to be seen through your kid, you know, Mm -hmm. like that just is like kind of a natural thing. Um, you know, I know for my mom, it's been kind of this lifelong interesting experiment for her around like do people think I'm your mom do they think I'm your friend do they think you know like what do they think of us um so yeah like I think parenting is a thing that can be really challenging for interracial couples yeah I can imagine the work you do has such an impact on their children as well Mm -hmm. in terms of like I mean, I have some, you know, white friends who are married to men who are not white. And it's sort of like sometimes <laughs> white people think that they don't have to worry about it because they have a mm-hmm. kid who's not white. You know what I mean? Like, like and so leaning into that work and doing that work together, I think I can imagine has yeah, paying it forward through multiple generations. Right. Like start like normalizing talking about it too. Yeah you know, instead of, instead of not talking about it. Yeah. Instead of just acting like that's not going to be an issue in the kid's life. Um, uh, how, how do, so I know you work with people like one-on-one mm-hmm. Michigan. So if you happen mm-hmm. to live in Michigan, we're going to put all your information in there. And I want you to say it out loud too, for people who don't mm-hmm. look at shadows. But like, how do people work with you? What's what? What are some ways that people listening want to, either themselves or or refer you to other people? Yeah, yeah. So I I um work with mixed clients um in Michigan one on one for therapy, and I offer that both in person and virtual, depending on where you're located and what your life looks like. I do one on one coaching for mixed people worldwide, um and um you know I think that there's some dis- difference and some overlap in therapy and coaching therapy tends to be more holistic sort of broad view of your life though of course if you're finding me like probably we're working on some mixed identity stuff mm-hmm. whereas coaching tends to be a little bit more focused um not the best fit for somebody who is like in active crisis or really really struggling emotionally somebody who has like some, um, some sense of like emotional safety or like groundedness. Um, uh, I work with couples, um, as well, both, um, in Michigan and outside of Michigan. And again, like there tends to be a difference in maybe the breadth versus the 
depth, the focus of the work that we're doing. And actually you're finding me in this time where I'm, I'm truthfully, transparently just sort of thinking about my business and thinking about some restructuring because I've been doing what I call somatic support for people of all identities. And I'm feeling like for my nervous system, I might need to just kind of focus. So um, if you're a person who's not um, by mixed or in an interracial relationship, you can still follow me on Instagram where I, um, and follow my blog and stuff like that, where I, I just share a lot of information and resources. I have a ton of like free resources and paid, um, paid replays of past workshops I've done. Like one is called your nervous system and your relationship. I have parts work workshops that are really awesome that I co-facilitated with a friend. Um, so those are sort of the primary ways that people can work with me right now. And then because I'm in this sort of restructuring, I, I, I've been doing courses for people of all identities, but probably most of my courses moving forward are going to be focused on mixed people. Yeah. And then the last way is people can work with me is that I do speaking and training on topics like what we're talking about today, trauma-informed practice, intergenerational trauma. I'm I'm actually preparing a workshop for an organization I have worked closely with in the past around like this grief work because they do um, uh, work around sexual assault. Um, and then I, occasionally I will teach a yoga class. So I don't wear the yoga teacher hat super frequently anymore. You know, I do sort of incorporate some yoga based stuff into sessions, but, um, yeah. Um, I, I feel like I want to do a whole separate episode on like yoga space uh-huh. <laughs> and your experience in that, but is there yeah. anything, um, cause I, I teach meditation and I've been working yeah. hard to kind of like decolonize my practice and, and support yoga studios and teachers that I, feel like are, you know, doing either doing the work as white people, mm-hmm. or people of other identities. Um, mm-hmm. how, how, I don't know if we have time to go into this right now, but I'm just curious, like your experience in the yoga mm-hmm. space, mm-hmm. Uh, particularly, as you mentioned, being in a larger body, like how, mm-hmm. how have you experienced that? And, and how do you work with people to undo some of the damage that's been done in those spaces. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I find yoga spaces really triggering for a number of reasons. Um, I have like my yoga home here that I go to, you know, that I trust and love. And what I find, I mean, even in that space is that I'm often the only person of color, you know? Um, And then So either I'll be the only person of color or I've had experiences where I've gone to classes for black folks and I'm the only mixed person, right? I'm the lightest person in the room. So that's sort of an interesting experience. Um, Absolutely, there's like the size-ism piece. And I think that because I'm a yoga teacher, I'm really good and don't have any shame about like making modifications for myself, but they're often not provided because if the person teaching the class is you know, of sort of like the quote unquote normal size of thin, then they're not, they don't have that experience in their body of, um, of being larger and knowing, um, what it's like to, uh, to move in a larger body. And I would say too, especially in whitewash spaces, you know, there's just this like fitness undertone. Like there are the studios where it's like explicitly like this is a fitness class. Right. And I don't love that. But I would say even like 
studios that are owned by white folks and are primarily white spaces, like even when that's not the focus, it's still there. Yeah. It's still there, you know, it, it has, and, and yoga space, yoga, these yoga classes, you know, I feel like they perpetuate this idea that you have to push yourself and that you are supposed to be getting somewhere and that you're supposed to be creating some certain shape in your body instead of using yoga as a, an, an, ex, an opportunity to witness and observe yourself or self-regulate or find pleasure. Mm. Um, they're just such performative spaces. Yeah. Um, it's really sad. It's really sad because I think anybody who practices yoga knows how powerful it is and how good it has felt for you, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that it can be, they can be not the most welcoming places. And then, you know, there's a lot of stuff around how, the lineage of yoga, the spiritual tradition aspect of it is honored or not, you know, I think one great example um, is the use of namaste. (laughs) I think a lot of times it's said is like, oh, like a lot of people think like, yeah, this, this is yoga, right? Like namaste. But if you listen to Indian teachers, Susan um, Bakarati, I think is her name or Susanna, I might be. Susanna Barkatapi, is that your Yes, yes, yes. And then there are two other um, women I'm thinking of who had this podcast, um, Who Killed Yoga, I think it was called, or White Women Killed Yoga or something like that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, they talk a lot about like, namaste is a greeting. Like, how did it get turned into this thing, you know, where people are thinking they're saying something really deep and it's a greeting. And um, yeah, so yeah, yoga spaces are, are hard. And that's something that I struggled with when I was at, when, before I went back to grad school to become uh, a therapist, you know, I would be in anti-racist spaces and they didn't feel spiritual enough. Um, but I would be in yoga spaces and they didn't feel conscious enough. Yeah. Yeah. Like fake conscious. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. Spiritual bypassing consciousness. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we could talk forever. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. like, that's, that's, a, that's my very like pain point, but also passion point. Um, well, thank you so much, Raina, for sharing all your wisdom and insights. Um, part, not all of it, <laughs> a glimpse of your wisdom and insight. I gave you everything I got. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's all it is. Um, so, um, can you say your website and your yeah. social skills just so people can hear them if they want to? Yep. So, um, my website is root to rise somatics.com. My socials are also root to rise somatics. I'm on Instagram and TikTok. I'm on threads right now, but I think I'm going to delete it because it's just, there's too much going on. (laughs) I just need two socials and that's root to rise, not roots to rise. People will often say roots to rise, but it's root, no S on the end of that there. Um, Awesome. I have not ventured onto TikTok yet and I have not ventured onto threads. And I may never do either one of those things. Yeah. Well, good things about TikTok that there's like a lot of really great knowledge there. I'm just yeah. not ready to go there yet. Um, well, Rena, thank you so much. This was so lovely. Um, and I um, I'm so excited to help get your, get your message out there. Thank you. It's so lovely talking with you. 
Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts, and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.